If your Bibles, why don't you take them and join me in the book of First Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study through First Peter together. And if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies. Just slip your hand up and they'll be happy to get you a copy of Scripture to follow along with us as we study. Always good to verify for yourself what the Word of God says. Last week we left off there in the end of verse 9. This morning we're going to go from verse 10 down through verse 16. Let me read God's Word and then we'll pray and ask Him to speak to our hearts. 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 10. says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And Father, we Humbly ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit as we study the word this morning. We, Lord, recognize that your word is alive, that it's an inspired book by you, that it's spiritual in its content and its nature. And so, Lord, we ask that as your Holy Spirit authored the word of God, that he would also now just be our interpreter and our teacher and our instructor in this hour. Lord, prepare us that we would have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. We ask you to bless your word and speak personally and efficiently and directly to every one of our hearts. And we believe that's what you want to and will do in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Have you ever noticed before that in life there is often, it seems, different and various responses to the exact same thing? Uh, Whether it's... A tragedy that happens, whether it's a death, whether it's some opportunity, whatever it may be, it seems that with all things, it can be the exact same thing, and yet there often can be different and varying responses to the exact same thing. And in the same way, I believe in regards to spiritual and eternal matters, there will always be variations in response. You can have the exact same thing and there will be different and various responses. And here in our passage this morning that we're going to study through together, we are looking at, in essence, responses to God's salvation. You'll take note as we go through this together, the Old Testament prophets had a response to God's grand salvation. The Old Testament prophets, they were sincerely puzzled and it seems somewhat mystified by God's salvation. That's what Peter's telling us here. And then take, for example, the angels. He mentions there at the end of verse 12, the angels also had a response to God's salvation. They were fascinated and they, with sort of a curiosity, have a desire to understand more fully everything that God's salvation pertains to. And then we have as well, I think, the Holy Spirit's response to salvation. And we see how the Holy Spirit is determined and he's dedicated to communicate the message of God's salvation, whether it was centuries ago through the prophets or whether it's currently right now in this present age where the Spirit is directing people to preach the gospel of salvation. And then lastly, we'll see as Peter gets practical in verse 13 through 16, he'll talk there about the Christian's response to salvation. And he'll go on with this in our verses ahead as he shows that Christians, believers, those who are truly children of God and born again, we should be affected by God's salvation. We should be impacted in a way whereby we then live accordingly as children of God. Now, Verses 1 through 9 that we've already looked at together, remember Peter has spent the opening nine verses talking a whole lot 
about God's glorious salvation. He talked about the way it unfolds, God's plan and the process, how salvation takes place, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the process of salvation. He talked about the benefits of salvation from many different angles. And now in verse 10, with that same concept in the mind of Peter here as the Spirit's directing him, he then says, notice verse 10, of this salvation, a summary of this salvation, a summaration, he says, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, he says, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and of the glories that would follow. So follow what Peter's doing here. Wanting to further show Christian believers he's writing to and to you and I as well today, wanting to further show the incredible privilege that we have of spiritual understanding and experience of God's salvation, Peter here refers to how God's salvation through Jesus Christ, the Savior, that it sincerely puzzled and, in a sense, you could say mystified the Old Testament prophets themselves who were the ones that God used to first predict it. Take notice here in verse 10 and 11 in our text that Peter identifies the means that God first used initially to announce his salvation was prophecy. That's what we read there if you look in our text. It tells us there that the prophets were those, Peter says, who prophesied of both the grace that would come to you and I as Christians as well as things about the life of Christ. Now when he says there the prophets, he's referring to those like Samuel and David and Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Micah, many of the characters and writers of the Old Testament scriptures, these select men that God used through the power of his Holy Spirit to communicate orally as well as to record written scripture. Uh, Peter's going to say in his second epistle, prophecy of scripture never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, telling us something important. That is, these men wrote and spoke what became the canon of scripture, that the Spirit of God was the one who was actually directing their thoughts and the very words they used as they expressed themselves at God's direction through their lives. In a sense, Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Zacharias, they recorded the books that we now have as Old Testament Scripture. The Spirit of God was directing their thoughts and directing their words. In a sense, by way of illustration, they were instruments. They became the telephone through which God spoke through. You know, if I want to speak to someone, the telephone is not making up. The telephone is, in a sense, the instrument through which my words, my thoughts, and my ideas are communicated. It's just the instrument or the device through which it's conveyed. And these men, in a sense, were the telephone through which God spoke what God wanted to say. They, in a sense, in another way, you could say, were sort of the pen, the instrument that God used to write by. God used a human instrument to record in written form what God wanted to say. And their primary message was about, as we see here, the grace of God that would come through the salvation experience that would be provided through Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In fact, Jesus himself identified that same thing when he spoke. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. It says that Jesus declared, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus went on to say, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter in to his glory and then Luke adds this and beginning at Moses and all the prophets Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself 
So as Jesus wanted to reveal himself and show how the word of God recorded and predictively spoke about his coming, his salvation, that he would be the Messiah and the Savior, and even all the way things out to the second coming of Christ, it says that Jesus said, look, how slow of heart you are to have believed all that the prophets already wrote about. How these things were all predicted in advance. That our Father, He told us that these things would come to pass. And it says that Jesus, using the prophets, expounded the scriptures concerning Himself. So He took them through a Bible study of the Old Testament, showing how the things that the prophets said spoke predictably of Himself and his personage and the plan of God of salvation that would take place through his life. And what Peter is drawing to our attention here in verses 10, 11, and 12, as I said, is in a sense the response of the Old Testament prophets that God used to predict and record the scripture about God's salvation, how they themselves, their response to God's salvation as they even wrote and recorded, they were mystified by it as the Spirit was using them as simply an instrument, and they were somewhat kind of puzzled trying to put the pieces together, particularly, specifically, they struggled to distinguish, we see, to distinguish between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You take note there in the text in verse 11, it tells us that the Spirit of Christ, Peter says, who was in him was indicating and testifying beforehand the things that would happen regarding the life and activities of Christ. And we see there that sometimes the Spirit indicated and spoke about the sufferings of Christ, he tells us, and sometimes the Spirit was indicating and speaking through them about the glories of Christ that would then follow these two comings. The first coming of Christ, you could say in one word, was characterized by what? Suffering. The first coming of Christ was characterized by suffering, that Jesus came the first time as a humble, suffering servant, that God came to earth in human flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus came as a humble servant in humanity to reveal God clearly in a body of flesh as a man, to minister to people compassionately and patiently, to serve, to wash people's feet, to take the lowest forms of servitude and be the greatest servant among men, and then also to live a sinless life and to die sacrificially for the sins of the world that he might make a path of salvation. And in the Old Testament, you find over 300 specific predictions just relating to the first coming of Jesus Christ to this earth alone. Passages in place like Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapters 50 through 53, we find multitudes of specific prophecies. Micah 5 and Daniel 9 and, and Zechariah chapter 9, these different places that speak of the first coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus, if his first was characterized by suffering, the second coming of Jesus would be characterized, I think, by the word Peter uses there as well, by glory. Because when Jesus returns a second time, understand he's not coming as a humble, suffering servant, meek and mild, riding on a donkey. He will be coming as a resurrected, powerful, glorious, reigning king as he returns in all of his glory and power as king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended back into heaven, back to his throne from which he came as king of kings. And when he comes the second time to this earth, he will come as a powerful reigning king in all of heaven's glory and set up his kingdom upon this earth and rule and reign in great power and we see that predicted in the old testament as well through the prophets in places like psalm 2 and psalm 16 and 22 as well isaiah speaks of the same thing in chapters 2 and uh, 34 and 63 Zechariah as well in chapters 8 through 14 covers this and Daniel chapter 7 refers to the second coming of Christ and see the Old Testament records this great deal of predictive information about the first and second coming of Christ it speaks of both comings and you find this all intertwined throughout the Old Testament books of scripture as well as you find the same authors Isaiah would speak of both the first coming 
and the second coming, the same author, as well as Zechariah. He spoke things of the first coming of Christ and things about the second coming of Christ. And to make it a little more challenging, at times, the first and second coming you'll find spoken of sort of intertwined even in like the same sections of the writings of these individuals that God was using to speak predictively of the Christ's two comings. So the references you'll find, you'll be reading maybe a chapter of Scripture and you have to pay attention because sometimes the Spirit of God will be speaking something about the first coming and then he'll go and speak something of the second coming and sometimes the reference will then transition back and give further information about maybe the first coming. So you can understand how the prophets then being used by the Spirit to record these things would find themselves somewhat puzzled trying to put the pieces together. Their difficulty simply was this, is trying to understand how the Messiah or the Christ, same idea, how the Messiah or Christ as a person could be both a humble suffering servant and at the same time be a glorious, powerful, reigning king simultaneously. And from their vantage point and from what understanding they have, they were trying to understand how did all that work together? That's what Peter's saying to us here. When or in what way would all this come to pass? Peter says the prophets, they inquired and searched what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he testified before both of the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. From their vantage point, having never experienced historically even the coming of Christ and what's happened afterwards, they were trying to connect the dots and they were having a challenge doing that, understandably so. If you can illustrate it in your mind this way, it's been proposed this way before, if you've ever been driving and you can see in the distance a mountain range, it looks like a bunch of mountains and it looks like just one beautiful mountain range. But then as you drive closer or maybe through a range of mountains, sometimes then you realize what from a distance looked like just a bunch of mountains. When you get closer, all of a sudden you realize, oh, well, there are huge gaps in between these mountains. And now that I'm closer to them and now that I'm actually passing through them, I can see there are big gaps in between two separate mountain ranges. But from a distance, they just look like one. This was the idea with the Old Testament prophets, speaking of the first coming and second coming of Christ. From their perspective, how could he be a suffering servant and a glorified king? And what they didn't see from their vantage point, they didn't see the gap in between the time frame of the first coming of Jesus to be a servant who sacrificed for sins and revealed God humbly. And his second coming, the gap in between called the church, which you and I are now living in, when then Jesus would come back after a gap of time as a reigning glorified king as the Messiah. And because of that, it says here that they searched and they inquired diligently. They wanted to understand it. They were curious to grasp more understanding. Peter is trying to tell us the privilege of understanding that you and I now have on the other side of Jesus' first coming as those who have the New Testament scripture as well, as those who are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit internally, who is speaking and predicting these things, that we have been given greater revelation than even the Old Testament prophets themselves. That we understand things more fully even than them in the scope of God's plan. But what I love in here by way of application is that the Holy Spirit tells us that the prophets inquired, and it says, verse 10, and they searched carefully for what to understand spiritual truth and to be able to put more pieces together to understand more about God and God's plan and God's salvation and they had an incredible hunger and desire to search out and to understand more spiritually and by way of application can I say they teach us a great lesson because the prophets there show us that it is an admirable thing in responding to God to eagerly inquire and to search out carefully greater understanding in the things of God. To be desirous of spiritual understanding. To be a person who prays and is a student of God's word because you want to know more about God. And you want to understand more about God's plan and God's salvation. That's a wonderful thing that we should all seek to have in our lives. Psalm 119 says, My eyes fail from searching your word. 
My eyes fail from searching your word. Now today, a lot of people's eyes probably fail from searching the world wide web. And people spend lots of time searching the world wide web for, and their eyes fail in front of a computer screen or in front of an iPad. Or something. My eyes fail. My eyes get tired and worn out from searching your word, God. He says in that same psalm, Psalm 119, 169, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. The writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs chapter 2, Yes, if you cry out for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we see this passion and this desirous heart that we should have as people as well, like the prophets, like the psalmist, like the writer of Proverbs, who speaks like a treasure hunt, a pursuit to discover and to understand more and more of who God is and of God's ways. And today, ask yourself the question by way of examination today, what is your personal level of response as it pertains to pursuing greater spiritual understanding for yourself? Whether you've been a Christian for two weeks or two months or 20 years. Whether you're a Christian who's 12 or 22 or 52 or 82 and maybe about to meet the Lord next week. I sure hope you want to know who he is before you experience him completely. What's your level of response personally to be searching out and say, I want to understand more. I want to inquire of the Lord to understand more of his word and what it says about him and to understand the things of God. And listen, that's not a vain pursuit because God promises in his word all throughout that he rewards those who seek understanding of him and his ways. He promises that he'll give it. It tells us in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, you will seek me, God says, and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I've always loved Jeremiah 33, 3, where God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. God, God beckons us. He gives an invitation. God says, there are things that you don't know about me, about my ways, about my plan for you, about the things of God. God says, call me. When we call other people, God says, call me. Call to me, I'll answer you. I will show you things that are great and mighty that you don't know. God wants to show us things. The Bible promises to the believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, that we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. God rewards those who seek understanding. And let me just say in connection to that, I know... I'll be the first to tell you, we may not understand and we may not come to comprehend all that we want to know as we seek out understanding. However, I find that the Lord always gives us at least what understanding we need to have in each given situation. And he gives us sufficient revelation and insight that we do need. And I can validate that because look at our next verse, verse 12. It says, to them, this is the prophets, it was revealed not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. See that the prophets, they were curious, they were seeking, they were searching carefully, inquiring. They wanted to understand more about God's salvation that they were speaking about and recording as the Spirit was using. And they were seeking spiritual understanding. And look what verse 12 says, that God gave them as a reward sufficient revelation that they needed to understand that was sufficient enough in their given situation. God revealed to them, verse 12 tells us, that though they did not understand everything that was happening in their lives as God's servants, and though they did not understand everything that they were hearing message-wise and that they were even speaking at times on God's behalf, they were saying things they didn't even fully understand to other people, God assures them that what they were doing was intended to minister 
to others, it says, and to lay what? A solid foundation so that in the future, people would ultimately hear the gospel of salvation being preached to them and God shows them what was sufficient to, to sort of quench their understanding. He showed them enough that what they were saying was speaking of things further out, way beyond themselves, down to the age when the gospel of salvation would be preached. And I found in my own life that sometimes, and maybe you'll find this as well, that when we seek the Lord for understanding in our own lives, sometimes, just like the prophets, the Lord will reveal to us that what he is doing includes a, a plan that stretches far beyond just us. And, and sometimes, you, Lord, I don't understand. Why is this going on? Or what's this about? And, and you pray and you seek the Lord and you're asking understanding. And he may not give you the full picture. He may not give you understanding in every way you'd prefer, but he gives you sufficient enough. And sometimes, like the prophets, he just says to you, look, here's what you need to know. What I'm doing in your life right now or what's going on or what I'm doing through you. Honestly, I am accomplishing a plan that goes way beyond just you. And sometimes that's just enough. It's just enough to realize, okay, Lord, this going on or that, there is something you're doing and it actually is far beyond me. It's a bigger picture. It's something a little further out and that's sufficient enough. It's the understanding we need to keep us carrying on. Take note as well here in verse 12 that Peter also adds this short statement regarding the angels' response to God's work and plan of salvation. He says that the angels themselves desire to look into these things regarding salvation. The idea there is they eagerly long with deep curiosity, the holy angels, to more fully understand and grasp what God's plan of salvation really is all about. There are many elements of God's salvation, whether it's the sufferings of Christ for sinful people or the grace of God that's extended to sinful human beings or, or how the whole plan of salvation works out and the second coming of Christ, I tell you, the Bible says that truly baffles even God's holy angels, that they themselves are intrigued by God's plan of salvation. And it makes sense. If you consider the realities, here are God's holy angels. Think of the reality and understanding of what things they know about the spiritual dimension and eternal life and the presence of God whom they are in and they understanding all these things watch us as human beings and they see how we act down here on earth since God's created us and, and they watch and it makes total sense to me that the angels would perceive these things and then see God send his son and watch us spit on God and watch us reject God and watch us punch God and beat God and abuse God. And, and the angels are watching all these things. And you can just imagine in your mind and vision, they know who God is. They dwell in the eternal dimension. And them comprehending and trying to put this through the, the understanding of their mind and being baffled by all this. You remember one occasion where uh, Peter tried to defend the Lord when he was being taken and mistreated. And Jesus says, Peter, don't you realize right now I, I could call down legions of angels to come and rescue me if that's really what I intended at this point. And I just envision, I can picture the angels right on the other side of the eternal dimension just sitting there going, just so, you know, just so angry, just ready. How could you let them do that? Just nothing but the, the Father in heaven restraining the holy angels wanting to just zoom in and just obliterate humanity as they watch God's Son being disrespected and disregarded and, and how it must perplex them. Verse 10 says, the grace that would come to you and I. They watch how God's so gracious to us and how Jesus did what he has done for us and yet that God grants us free will that God loves us so unconditionally and he gives us opportunity and they must scratch their heads in bewilderment as they try and put together all the pieces of God's salvation and what he does for us. And the angels as well, remember, they never will experience redemption and salvation the way that you and I do as human beings. We are, as human beings, sinful human beings, we are the beneficiaries of God's plan of salvation. There's not redemption for angelic beings. So there is an aspect of salvation that's something exclusive that happens between God and human beings. 
the forgiveness we experience, the love we experience, that, the, that God indwells us and comes and lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit, there's a part of that. There'll always be a gap for the angels that they don't fully grasp and comprehend as we have this special privilege and experience that we do with God, knowing him in this intimate, personal way. And it's that amazing reality, I think, as well, that becomes the reason, too, for not just the prophets and the angels' response, but the response of the Spirit of God towards God's salvation as well. The Spirit of God has a response towards God's salvation, and it's here within verses 10 to 12, and that is this, that I see the Spirit of God is determined and dedicated to communicate the message of God's salvation. If you notice here in verse 10 to 12, uh, or specifically here, that you have two times it mentioned, Peter uses the term Spirit of Christ and Holy Spirit synonymously, just like Paul does in Romans chapter 8. Two times we see that it's the Spirit that's the one behind God's salvation being shared. In verse 11, Peter tells us that it was the Spirit who was indicating and speaking to the prophets in regards to God's salvation for centuries. It was the Spirit conveying the message of God's salvation to the prophets. And now, on the other side of the cross, verse 12, Peter says, it is the Spirit who was sent from heaven since Christ has come, who is now the one using men as human beings to preach the gospel of salvation in this current age where we live at right now in this generation. So the point is this, God's spirit in response to God's salvation will never change. God's, God's response by his spirit to his own salvation, the spirit's response is he is very dedicated and determined to keep speaking about it for century after century after century after century. His intention to share it is never going to change. He is continually dedicated to help people understand it, to let people know they need to obtain it, and to persuade people to respond to it. And in relation to that, if you're a believer this morning, let us not quench the Spirit of God's response within us as he's wanting to now use us to preach the gospel of salvation in this generation by his power. And if you're not saved this morning and you haven't submitted to Jesus Christ yet, can I forewarn you, the Holy Spirit has been dedicated for centuries to communicating about God's salvation. So it's a losing battle. He's going to keep talking to you about God's salvation until the day that you respond to it. That's why the Bible says if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now is the day of salvation. The Spirit's response is to communicate and to convey it continuously throughout our age even to this day. And at this point, Peter, now having talked for 12 verses about God's salvation, he now turns in verse 13, we'll see, and he starts to become applicational. And he starts to speak about, as I said lastly, that the believer and the Christian as well should also have a response to God's salvation. And he now begins to give a series of exhortations saying, therefore, he says, I talked to you a lot about God's incredible salvation. Therefore now, he's going to say, you and I as born again Christians, we should have a response and live responsibly as a result of experiencing God's salvation, that meeting Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit should have an impact upon our lives. As a Christian, I should have a response to God's salvation, and that is that my life should now be affected and changed as a result. Look what Peter says, verse 13. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing Peter says that salvation should do is have an effect and an impact upon our mind. It should have an effect upon our thoughts. Salvation should have an impact upon our perspective mentally and where our focus is at. That our thinking, once we've been saved, our thinking can and should come under the control of the Holy Spirit as we look to God for help. Peter says, verse 13, the exhortation to the Christian, gird up the loins of 
your mind. Now, that's not a phrase we would say nowadays in our culture. What he's referring to there is an ancient expression in a day that they would wear long flowing robes, the men as well. And as they wore these long flowing robes, if they wanted to move quickly or if they needed to do some work productively, what they would do is they would gird up their loins. They would gather the, the, the robe that was hanging down flowing. They would pull it up and they would cinch it off in their sash up higher so that the robe didn't trip them up and impede their progress if they needed to move more quickly or they needed to work more constructively. They were girding up their loins. And the idea there was to remove the part of the robe that could impede progress or hinder them from being productive. Well, with that expression, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. The idea that he's trying to say is, pull your thoughts together so that they don't hinder you. Don't let your thoughts hinder or impede your progress. Sometimes we need to sort of reel back in the flowing thoughts of our minds. Sometimes our minds begin to go to places. Our thoughts begin to go in certain directions. And sometimes we have to reel in our thoughts. We need to bring together our thought life so that it doesn't mentally hinder us. The warning here, very simply, is that things in our minds can slow us down. If we're not careful, our thoughts can begin to hinder us and to entangle us and trip us up. So Peter's giving an admonition not to get sloppy with our thought life. That we should never get lazy with our thought life and just irresponsibly ignore and just let our mind think about whatever it begins to think about. Letting our mind wander, listen, too freely without putting restrictions on our own mind. Peter says, no, you should put restrictions on your own mind. In fact, he says, sometimes you need to take responsibility, no one else can get in your mind, to reel in the thoughts of your own mind and to be careful and cautious because whenever the mind is not controlled, it can genuinely ensnare us and trip us up. And Peter knew this firsthand. Can I remind you in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus was talking about his sufferings and that he was going to be rejected by men and crucified. And Peter didn't like that message. Remember when Jesus started to talk about? And it says that Peter took Jesus aside and he started to rebuke him and said, far be it from thou, Lord. That will never happen to you. You're not going to suffer. We can't let you suffer. And, and this, this would be wrong. And, and Peter began to rebuke Jesus because he didn't want that path and that experience to come into the Lord's life. That was his mindset. And what did Jesus say? Remember what Jesus did? Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You're offensive to me. He said to Peter, you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In other words, what he's saying is, Peter, your mindset is way off right now. Your perspective is wrong. The devil is inspiring that mindset. And Peter, your mind is off target right now. It can happen. Even as a Christian, our minds can get off target. And Jesus identified your mind's off target. Your thoughts have gone to a wrong place. And therefore, Peter, those thoughts need to be corrected. You need to reel your thoughts back in because your thoughts are not the way God would have you thinking. And it's an indication of needing a disciplined mind to take control of our thoughts. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. He says that we are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you hear that? There are times when thoughts are going to come into your mind that are going to try and argue and dispute against the ways of God rationalizations and justifications and things people are going to say when they give you their opinion and, and their worldly ideology and it's going to argue and dispute and make you want to challenge the ways of God or question the ways of God and, and Paul says when that happens we need to take control and we need to throw down anything that would argue against the knowledge of God and his word he says that sometimes we need to take captive our thoughts you got to actually go capture your thoughts and bring that thought into it. Look, that is not the way Jesus would have me think. And you've got to capture your thought and make your thought become submissive to the ways of Jesus Christ. It's a process that we have to participate in because our mind is an important part of our existence. Because our thoughts have an incredible effect upon our lives. James says the double-minded man can become unstable in all of his ways. 
And it's an important thing for us. The Lord wants us to make progress and the Lord wants you to walk in his ways and he knows that one of the ways you can get tripped up is if you don't gird up the loins of your mind. Warren Wearsby always used to say, outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. And there's a lot of truth to that because sometimes irresponsibility in relation to our own thoughts and our own minds, if we're not careful, can be something that can cripple a person, can actually begin to hold them back and trip them up. And it's all because of irresponsibility to take control of the mind and to realize the impact of thoughts. I think we need to realize that what we permit with our mind has incredible influence over our lives. It's powerful. It is the area where the devil wages his warfare, and it is why I think Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That even my mind, I'm to love God with my mind, you know, I can read my Bible, be reading my Bible, and all of a sudden reading my Bible, my mind's going here, my mind's going there. And where's my mind right now? And I got to use my mind to love God with his mind. I can be singing a worship song and thinking about this and that. Wait, Lord, help me to love you with my mind. Yeah, your body belongs to the Lord and your soul belongs to the Lord, and so do your mental faculties. Use your mental faculties for the Lord. Don't let things in your mind that shouldn't be there. Don't fascinate about things that are untrue and unhealthy you shouldn't fascinate about. Don't think in ways that are going to affect your attitude and your outlook that God wouldn't have you think about. It's often been said before, you know, a bird may fly over your head, but you don't have to let it make a nest in your hair. It's the idea with your thoughts. I know weird thoughts come into our mind. The devil sows bizarre, crazy things. You know, where did this thought come from? Or why am I thinking like this? But listen... It may come, but you don't have to let it make a nest there. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't let your thought processes in your mind trip you up. Peter says as well, verse 13, regarding our minds and our thoughts, to be sober. And what's sober? It's the opposite of what we would consider drunkenness. The indication of be sober means to be under the control fully without being influenced by something else. It indicates a seriousness, that we should have a measure of seriousness and self-control and take serious our relationship with Jesus Christ. That we shouldn't be careless in our mindset about our walk with the Lord. It's a serious matter that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You shouldn't be careless. I shouldn't be lazy mentally about the fact that I have a relationship with God. Again, when we think of the word sober, we picture the opposite of a person being drunk, right? There's a drunk person, there's a sober person. When a person's drunk, what it's connotated about? They're under the influence of something else. Their thoughts, their speech, their actions, their behavior is under the influence of something else. When a person's sober, they're not under the influence of something else. They have sound judgment, they have self-control, they have a sober, good perspective because they are clear thinking. And that's the idea the Bible is trying to convey here that we should be sober mentally. Listen, I, I would hope it would go without saying, but lest I assume, and I've done that wrongly before, it is not God's will that we be under the influence of other things like alcohol or drugs or substances because sadly, what happens? Think from a perspective in the mind, a lot of times the deceitfulness of the devil in our world is to get people to do what? To use substances that alter a person's state of mind to help them cope with life. And it never ultimately helps. The drugs, the alcohol, it, it's a coping process with the mental struggles of trying to deal with life and all it does is it makes a person make worse decisions. And it makes a person's judgment impaired where they make greater mistakes. And Peter is saying here, no, we've got to be sober. We've got to stay clear thinking because of the time in which we live in. Peter's going to say in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Keeping that clear thinking. He says as well in verse 13 as well that we should be focusing our perspective upon what's to come. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Second time Peter's used this term, revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking there about the soon coming of Jesus, a time when Jesus reveals himself and you and I as Christians are caught up to meet the Lord in the air and we get to go home to that heavenly inheritance that Peter was talking about earlier. And Peter says, look, that's where we got to set our hope. We need to rest our hope, put our reliance upon the perspective of the revelation of Jesus Christ that we're going to soon see him face to face and be in eternity with him forever. And therefore, we want to put our perspective and keep our perspective on eternal matters, on our eternal destination with an eternal focus and let that focus be what we rest all of our hope upon and that we also use as the basis to make all of our decisions that we process in this world right now. That we're resting our hope on that and therefore that is what we use as the basis to make our decisions and process everything that we do on this earth. That, like Colossians 3 says, we set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So then we process things with a heavenly perspective. Peter goes on, verse 14, to say, as obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written, be holy because I am holy. So verse 13, he says, salvation should affect our minds. Verse 14 through 16, he shows that it should also affect and impact our behavior. That as children of God, we should properly represent our Father in heaven that we are now God's children. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And in these verses, Peter shows that as a child of God, our lives should be characterized by two things predominantly. Our life should be characterized, first of all, by obedience to God. He says, verse 14, that we are to be obedient children or children of obedience. In natural existence, it is the natural design for a child to be obedient to their father or to their parent. That's the norm. It's the way it's supposed to happen. That a child would be submissive to the authority of their father. And nothing brings more pleasure, right, to a parent than when their child is submissive, respectful, and obedient. The same is true with God as a father. Nothing brings more pleasure to God and nothing is more proper for a child of God than to be obedient to God. As children, we should be obedient to our Father in heaven. That's what pleases Him. That's what's proper is that we should be obedient in the way that we live and we respond to Him. So as a child of God, my life, your life, should be characterized by obedience. This morning, is your life characterized by obedience to God? Are you being obedient to God? In his word, in his will, in his ways, are you being obedient to God? Our life should be characterized by that. He says as well here in verse 14 that our lives should secondarily be characterized by change or transformation. Change and transformation. He says, verse 14, not conforming to the former lusts as when we were living in our ignorance. The idea is the days in which we were unsaved. Our sinful desires, do they still pressure us? Yes. But as a Christian, once we are born again, we should be living differently than we lived before. We should not be conforming to the ways in which we once lived. Let me quickly read to you the words of Peter from chapter 4. Peter says, For we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. Imagine that in the Bible. Abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, dissipation speaking evil of you. Peter says, look, we did enough of that in the past. That was then. That was who we were. We are new creations now. People should be looking at us now as a Christian going, what's the matter with you? You don't come to the drinking parties anymore. You don't get drunk anymore. You're not filled with lust anymore. You're not filled with anger anymore. You don't act the same way anymore. Right. Because I'm different now. I'm transformed. I'm changed. 
I'm not the same person. Our lives should be characterized by obedience to God and change and transformation. That's what Peter is saying. And Peter shows us that this comes through relationship with God and through relating to his word. That's what verse 15 and 16 say. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As he who called you is holy. Notice there, he who called you is holy. The only one that's holy is God. How do we experience holiness in our lives then? By experiencing God. The more I experience God, the more I'll become like God as a child of God. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all you do. Again, with this idea of a child and a parent, we say he's the spitting image of his father. Or we say like father, like son. What are we indicating? The power of genetics, right? Genetics influences that the child is much like their father. Well, the Bible says, Second Peter, in fact, says that we are now partakers of the divine nature. That when you become a child of God, the nature, by God's spirit, of God enters into you. So when you and I progressively walk with God, we should progressively becoming more godly. There should be more holiness in our lives. There should be greater measures of reflecting who God is in our lives. Peter says, because it is written, verse 16, be holy for I am holy. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 11 that God says, be holy for I am holy. And Peter, I think there teaches us that part of the way, please hear me, part of the way to become more obedient, part of the way to become more transformed, part of the way to become more like God and experience more holiness like the holy God we serve takes place via our relationship to the scripture. Look again with me in verse 16 and note these words. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. The scripture is now my standard that I submit to and I yield to. Let me put it this way simply. When you become a Christian, you have a new relationship to the word of God. If God's word says it, that settles it. Plain and simple. If God's word says it, that settles it. In a sense, the highest way I can respond to God is by faith being obedient to his word because it is written, I'll be holy because he is holy. This morning, I would ask you this today. What is your response to God's word? Are you just receiving it in its information or are you responding to its instruction? Great question to ask yourself. In relation to God's word, are you just receiving its information or are you responding to its instruction by letting it govern your life in the way you behave and act? There's a big difference there between knowing information mentally and acting upon it through our life responsively and saying, all right, Lord, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And if the scripture says this, that settles it. I'll respond to that. And in so doing, we're responding to God in the best way that he would have us to.